All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Learn Your English is a company that is changing the way people study, learn, and teach languages. Learn Your English offers students and teachers strategies to effectively develop their abilities and skills in their own time. Bringing you the latest in English language learning and teaching, Teacher Talking Time explores all angles for teachers and students alike. Got a question? Comment. A story to share. Send us an email at info at learnyourenglish.com. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Teacher Talking Time, the podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. I'm Andrew. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't followed us on social media yet, please do so. Give us a couple of clicks. We're everywhere on the internet. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, everywhere you check online, Learn Your English Network. Email as well, info at learnyourenglish.com. On today's show, a big one. You'll want to stick around for this. An interview with a good friend of mine, Marek Kitschkowiak, PhD graduate and advocate for many things, but mostly for non-native speaker teachers in our industry. A big issue currently in ELT. It's a very important cause, and I'm so happy he could find the time to join us. He'll tell us all about his organization, TEFL Equity Advocates and Academy, the courses he runs, and of course, his book coming out soon as well. So stick around, guys, for that. All coming up on this episode of Teacher Talking Time. Yo, what's up, everyone? This is Leo, and this is the Learn Your English podcast, Teacher Talking Time. All right, uh, and I'd like to welcome to the show today uh, a good friend of mine, Marek Kichkoviak. Marek, how are you? Good, good, and good pronunciation, Andrew, of my <laughs> of my last name. I know you've practiced before before we went live, so so yeah, well done. I've been, thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. I've been practicing for sure. It's a it's a tricky one for us native speakers over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's easier than it actually looks when it's when it's written. So it is. My Polish is not not up to speed. Maybe you can teach me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, we could we could arrange some some classes definitely. <laughs> okay, I've got a quick uh, quick bio of you here, Merrick. Uh, I'm gonna read it. And let me know if I'm missing anything. Okay. All right. So you are a teacher, author, PhD, and Delta graduate, IELTS examiner, public speaker, advocate, and teacher trainer. Am I missing anything there? No, I think I think that's uh, quite a lot of hats that I that I wear. But yeah, I, pretty pretty much you know. And currently, I work as a as an EAP, English for Academic Purposes teacher in a university here in Belgium in a city called Leuven. Beautiful. Yes, you do have quite a lot of hats and you've had a lot of hats for quite a while. Full disclosure here, you and I have known each other for quite a long time. Do you remember when we met? Uh, I do, yeah. I mean, we, we met, you gave me a job in Costa Rica when <laughs> I didn't have a job, but I needed a job because a lot of jobs were for native speakers only and I wasn't a, a native speaker and I needed a job. So you gave me a job. That's I, how we 
<laughs> kind of, I always find that a little bit ironic because uh, I don't know if you know this, but when I met you, I was, uh, you know, I was kind of on my beginning of my teaching career, and you were, were already very well established and very, you know, had lots of experience, and, and again had not all the hats that we just talked about, but had many of those hats. And I looked up to you a lot as a teacher, and I was giving you a job, which I thought I was thought was really funny and kind of backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but it, you know, I was I was really lucky that uh, that we met at, at that point as well. You know, a for for the job, but obviously more importantly for the for the friendship as well. And you know, and that was back in two thousand and twelve or thirteen, was it? I think it was before that. I, I arrived there in two thousand and ten, and I know we didn't meet that first year, but maybe eleven, twelve, something like that. Yeah, I think it must have been two thousand and twelve. Okay, I think when we met. Yeah, and that was your second stint in Costa Rica. Is that right? Yeah, it was. So I was there in 2010. That was my first job abroad. My first, let's say, a proper job in a language school because before that I worked in Poland, but it was just part-time when I was still studying and so on. So in 2010, I got a job in International House, uh, mm-hmm. San Jose, which then unfortunately went bankrupt. I hope it wasn't because I used to work there, <laughs> uh, but it did go bankrupt, unfortunately, later on. And yeah, and so I worked there for a year, full academic year in 2010, and then I left and uh, I moved to Spain for six months. There was in, I was in Hungary as well, and then uh, I went back to Costa Rica. Right. Yeah, so I guess your experience or your story isn't that different than a lot of teachers, right? In terms of traveling around the world a little bit, teaching abroad, uh, but most of your experience, would it be fair to say, is in Europe? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I've got two years of experience in, in Costa Rica, but that's the only non-European country that I've taught in, and the rest are European countries like Spain and Hungary that I've already mentioned, Poland, uh, the Netherlands, now Belgium, and then also the UK. Right, okay. So if people don't know, you are from, from Poland, correct? Yes, yes, I am. Yes, which city in Poland? Uh, it's a small town called uh, Koszalin. I usually tell people that a lot of people know Gdańsk, which is where Lech Wałęsa, the, mm. the famous uh, founder of Solidarność, um, worked and, and, and lived in Gdańsk. So my city is kind of two hours to the west on the coast uh, from that city. All right. I haven't been to Poland yet, but it's on my list. I'll get there one day. Yeah, you should. You should definitely. We should do a trip together. <laughs> I would love that. Um, so, Merrick, as you know, with Learn Your English, we're big into the learning philosophy or a learning to learn. And a lot of our students and even our teacher trainers uh, are curious about the stories of people who have learned any language and how they did it. So before we go forward here, let's go backwards a little bit. And if you wouldn't mind indulging us in uh, your your process of learning and acquiring English from whenever you started and, uh, until now or until you, you say you became proficient and how did you learn and how... If, if it was in Poland when you were a child, how was the learning process there and how was the education, the English education in Poland then versus what it is now? Yeah, so I, I think my the way I learned English was very traditional. And uh, uh, if later on we get a chance to talk about how I've learned other languages since then, um, it's I've, I've done it in a different way and I would recommend people do it in a different way. But it's it was very traditional, so... Basically, you know, I started learning English, I think, when I was eight or something like this. And then my parents signed me up for extra classes, as a lot of parents do in countries like Poland, when they consider that the state 
uh, edu language education isn't good enough, so they send me for private classes. I used to um, be a student, for example, in international house school uh, in my hometown. So that's, you know, for sort of I started when I was seven or eight. And then um, my first sort of, let's say, big achievement as a learner was passing the first certificate in English. I think I did that when I was like 13 or something. And then um, I passed the CP, the Certificate of Proficiency in English, in when I was about 17 or 18 before, before going to university. And then I went to university and studied what we call English philology, which is basically a mixture of English literature, linguistics, but also teaching English. And I studied that for, for three years. And then um, in between, I think the first time I went to the UK was when I was 17. My parents sent me on a, on a language course. Um, and uh, I also did that uh, twice afterwards. And then I also, when I was in university, I would go every summer to work in the, in the UK. So that, uh, so, so yeah, apart from that classroom sort of learning, I also learned when I, when I went to, uh, to work. But it was, I think, a very traditional way of learning languages. And I don't think of it as particularly effective because if you think about it, you know, I started when I was seven and then let's say we could say I became completely proficient, whatever that means, when I was <laughs> 17 and passed the certificate of proficiency of, in English. Obviously, I've been learning since then, right, as we as we all do. But you right. could say I reached the C2 level, the pinnacle of language acquisition at that point. So it took me 10 years, right? So I don't think that was particularly effective. But then with other languages, like especially in, with Spanish, I know you, you learned Spanish as well, Andrew, sort of completely through immersion. I started in a language school with Spanish. I did a year in Poland. And then the rest of it, I was just learning on my own. And, uh, you know, when I, I, I first traveled around Mexico and then I, I lived in Costa Rica, I put a lot of effort on my own, learning vocabulary, reading a lot, listening to podcasts, uh, mm -hmm. uh, novellas, and, and so on, and, <laughs> and learning, learning like that. And it was just much quicker. I mean, it took me three years to reach the same level that it had taken me 10 years in, in English. Um, That's so, really, really interesting. I mean, uh, so what I'm, I'm hearing when, when you say the traditional method of learning, I think we know what that means. It, you know, textbook based grammar, writing sentences, not a lot of speaking. Would that be fair to say? Uh, I think so. I think another problem is, you know, there is this myth that children are better at learning languages yes and this is true if they are in an immersion setting right so if you drop a canadian child in a spanish immersion setting they'll learn spanish like this right and and they can learn it to uh you know this native speaker level let's say mm -hmm. but if children just learn for three hours a week in state schools or language schools they're not very effective learners i mean there's plenty of research that shows that um people who start later for example, teenagers, but even adults, they, they make much more progress, much quicker. It is true that as adults, very few adults can ever get to, uh, you know, the, the C2 level or native like level in a, in a language. Um, so their progress kind of, uh, uh, stops at some point. Uh, there's a, there's a, a plateau effect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, but for kids, it doesn't, but, but it doesn't mean that kids are, are better learners of English and, uh, um, you know, I've seen that as a teacher as well, that you are in these language schools. I remember teaching in Spain and then I get a class of 10 teenagers. They're about 15 or 16 and they just know every trick out of the teacher's pocket because they've been in, in that school for eight years. Right. 
and they have no desire whatsoever to be in my classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, they have no desire whatsoever to learn English. They, they're only there because the parents make them be there, basically. Um, you know, and they're polite enough not to cause problems um, as students. But, you know, and so, you know, they're, they're, they've been there for eight years and they may be intermediate or upper intermediate. I mean, right. that, that's, that's not great progress if you think <laughs> about it. No, no and, actually, it's horrible progress. And these experiences have kind of, I've, I've always been telling, like sort of thinking to myself that if I have kids, would I send them to a language school? No, I, I don't think I'd ever send my kid to a language school as a kid. Oh, that's interesting. So, program, I think. Yeah. So would you send them, not maybe not send them, but would you encourage them or take them on vacation and, and maybe live abroad or different places as opposed to enrolling them in a school like that? I think, I think I'd encourage them to, you know, to they can even start learning a language a little bit later if they if they want to i don't i don't think there'll be such a huge difference whether they mm -hmm. start at the age of 7 or 11 to give you another example here in flanders which is the dutch speaking part of belgium mm -hmm. uh guess at what age people start learning english formally in school oh boy um 7 no 12 12 12 you're kidding. And come come over come over here and talk to people in English. I mean they're just they're incredibly fluent, as fluent as you can get, right? Obviously there is some variety and differences. There's people who, you know, you can't tell them apart from a native speaker. There's people who are kind of upper intermediate and and so on. But on average they're incredibly proficient. They're kind of like, you know, like in Scandinavia or in the Netherlands proficient, you know? Right. And like you, I asked my students in the university, how did you learn your English? And they kind of shrug the shoulders. They have no idea. <laughs> and most of them is kind of playing computer games, uh, watching TV. Everything in here is dubbed. There's not a single thing that, uh, that it's subtitled, excuse me. There's not a single okay. thing that's dubbed, right? So everything is in the original language. And they just, you know, they just watch first cartoons, their films, series. Uh, they read books, you know, and everything is in English. They're just surrounded by English. On the other hand, you know, they all have to learn French as well as a second language. And the proficiency in French is much lower. They start when they are seven or eight sort mm -hmm. of thing. But they get very little exposure to French, even though half of the country speaks French. But there's, you know, they kind of, uh, in here, they, they get much more exposure to, to English. And, and the proficiency in French is much lower. So, I, like, if I, was, if I was to do one thing, like, to kind of to learn a language or if I had children... I would just encourage, I would just put everything in the target language, you know, like, so if your kid wants to learn English, I'd encourage them to, to play computer games in English, to read books or to whatever they're interested in, do that in the target language, or at least try, you know, from very early on. Excellent. Uh, I think that's, that's incredibly powerful and, and formal education, unless it's done very, very well, is, I think it's less effective for languages, especially if you're forcing your kid to go to a language school, they don't want to be there. I never wanted to be in language classes. I absolutely hated them. Right. So you I think know? you're harping on something that's really important here and you keep talking about doing something that people are interested in, right? So re whether it be reading or watching movies or watching series or listening to music or whatever the case may be. And then you, you said a while ago that, you know, it took you maybe 10 years or so to become quote unquote proficient in English learning in Poland versus a much shorter time in the other languages that you speak. You speak French, you speak Spanish. Uh, you, I believe you're learning Dutch as well, right? Yeah. So do you yeah. think, you know, 
in your childhood you were less interested or not as motivated to learn as you were you know in, in adulthood later learning those other languages definitely yeah and i mean i think as an adult as well that's what a lot of researchers say that you know your your mental ability um to um sort of to to think in abstract ways and to make connections and so on is you know is much greater than as a kid a again a kid can learn languages very quickly in an immersion environment but you know in a formal environment it doesn't it doesn't really work that well and if if an adult puts their mind to it uh you know and starts studying themselves in ways that are effective then you know that they can they can learn it really quickly you know at least to sort of upper intermediate level and, and and so on right i mean and motivation factors range widely right i mean we've both taught in schools and had you know corporate clients etc who the only motivation was just for their job which is perfectly fine and that's a good sense of motivation but i think it's it's our it's our job as teachers right to inquire and find out in whatever capacity that we're teaching what our motivation of the students is and then teach the lessons accordingly right because without motivation there really isn't any learning yeah no absolutely i think motivation is is key and and finding as you said finding what motivates students is key and i also think that the more i i've read about second language acquisition the more i i'm frustrated with how language courses are organized you know that it's what Thornbury called uh, the grammar McNuggets, right? That, you know, you look at every single course book in every single language and it's either organized around lexical McNuggets or grammar McNuggets, yep. right? And so, you know, I was helping my girlfriend learn Polish the other day and and she just, like, she the topic was sports, right? And, and bear in mind she's, you know, like A1 level or A2. She had all these different words for sports, like, you know, a cyclist and a female cyclist and a male cyclist, because there's a different in Polish. And, and I was like, what, what's, what's even the point? I mean, <laughs> there's so, so many words. And like, if you probably look at the frequency of those words, you know, a lot of them are very infrequent words, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, you know, I, I think a much better way of organizing courses is around tasks or things that, your student has to do with the language right so so let's say you know what what's what's my girlfriend one of the tasks that my girlfriend has to do well and and other students in her class because most of them are in the same situation they have a a partner who's polish right um one task is probably you know cook together and talk about uh, the dishes that they're making you know that could be a very simple task uh, but that's one of right. the things that you have to talk about another one is maybe I don't know, talking on the phone to my mom or something like this. I, I don't know. But there's, there's plenty of tasks, you know, for, that you could, so you're not teaching present perfect. And today is Tuesday, we're teaching past continuous, but you're teaching meaningful tasks or things that people can do with the language rather than dividing the language into some sort of artificial, um, you know, vocabulary or, or, or grammar McNuggets. No, absolutely, right? So it's inverted teaching. And this is one of the biggest positives i think of task-based learning obviously right whereas you and this is what i did in spanish i mean as you said i never really took formal lessons in spanish here and there maybe but you know by doing a task or, or by task i simply mean doing something that you would have to do in your life you find your own gaps in your own language right you know i need to yeah. make a phone call to order a pizza and as i'm making the phone call i realize i don't know the word for you know, pepperoni or whatever. So I make an, a mental note of that and I know what I don't know or I realize what I don't know and I can, uh, you know, arrange my learning 
that way as opposed to oh i'm going to learn the grammar for this today but not actually know how to apply it in the real world right yeah no absolutely and i mean the the grammar or, or the language can be taught on a on a needs basis right so you focus on the Mm-hmm. on the on the linguistic aspects that are needed for a particular task and you know and you can do the same task on different levels of proficiency with different um sort of degrees of flexibility that are required from the from the learner right so on level a1 ordering a pizza could just involve saying the word pizza and have maybe or something like this right on a higher level you know you would expect the learners to to do requests in much more flexible and varied ways perhaps and, and have a bit of a chit chat maybe as well with i don't know with the um, with the with the person on the other end of the phone or something like that right for sure absolutely and uh okay um speaking of of motivation uh kind of on the opposite spectrum uh even before we as teachers get into the classroom uh the reason that we get into the classroom is because we we get hired we get a job right uh a very big sense of demotivation for teachers is not getting a job. And you've kind of been a big advocate for uh, non-native speaker teachers and uh, perhaps a lack of job opportunities for them. And you are the founder of an institution called TEFL Equity Advocates and Academy. And I'm just reading from the website here. Uh, the, the modus operandi basically is against native speaker bias in ELT and for equal employment opportunities for native and non-native speaker teachers, which I think, and I, I mean, I'm very familiar with this cause. I've done some work for you as well. Uh, maybe you can just tell us and tell our listeners uh, how this idea came about, what it's for, uh, and the progress that you've made uh, so far. Yeah, so in a, in a nutshell, it, it was, came, it originated from my own frustrated attempts at, you know, getting, getting jobs uh, abroad in language schools. And being told that I can't be hired simply because I'm from Poland and not from the UK and my name is Marek and not Mark, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and I've, you know, I've time and time again, you know, people come across like some really blatant discrimination and, and, and you know, and the justification given is, is crazy uh, if you think about it, you know, that we are in 2018. So, you know, that, that happened to me several times and, you know, and I kind of, Try to look for help and, and, and find out what to do about it. But there was very little online that was available. Uh, so I just decided to start a blog. I didn't really know what I was doing. And, you know, I just wrote, wrote the first blog post and then I wrote a couple more. And then all of a sudden people started reading the blog. I was really surprised that somebody would ever read a blog about it. <laughs> and then they were started writing to me. And then I discovered other people have written about it previously. Uh, and so on that uh, there were other blog posts that there was an even whole academic field about it you know people had been doing phds and stuff like this on the on the topic you know and a lot of people started you know sending me the the words of support and so on and you know that was about five or six years ago maybe and and since then you know it's evolved into into different things you know it started as a as a campaign basically and still is a campaign for equal professional opportunities that you know, the, the main aim is that all teachers are hired based on their qualifications, experience, basically based on their ability to do the job, not based on the mother tongue or the country they were, they were born in. Um, and I think that would benefit all of us because if you think about it, you know, if, if a school is hiring, uh, teachers, selecting them mainly, 
based on the country where they come from or the, the mother tongue, then clearly they're, they're not selecting the best teachers because, you know, probably the vast majority of the vast majority of English users are non-native speakers and the vast majority of English teachers are non-native speakers as well. So if you're limiting yourself to, let's say, the, the 20 or 30 percent of English teachers out there, you're clearly missing out on some probably even more highly qualified teachers who weren't even allowed to apply for that job, right? right. So I think it would have a good effect on, on the quality of, of teaching itself. And I think it would benefit all of us. If you, you know, I've spoken to a lot of native speakers who are frustrated that they are used as advertising tokens, mm -hmm. really, as, as posters for the language school. Uh, because they have the right face and the right name and the you know and the schools advertise having native speakers rather than advertise having qualified experienced and 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 highly skilled teachers right and uh, i think as a native speaker it's it's also you know denigrating a little bit that you're you're not treated as a proper teacher you're treated as a native speaker yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 fascinating. I'm not surprised that you've gained a lot of traction in the topic because it's so relatable and it's so identifiable and it's on both sides. It's kind of an inverted sense of, of self, right? Because for me as a native speaker teacher, you know, you're never really sure per se if you're being hired for your qualifications or for, as you say, how you look or where you're from or what your name is. Just like a non-native speaker teacher would experience the same discrimination. And let's be clear, it it is discrimination based on the same thing. One of those people gets the job, one of those people often does not get the job, but the, the basis for hiring or not hiring is the same. It's the name rather than the qualifications. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So um, I think it would benefit all of us in, in the profession. It, it, you know, it would make our industry more professional as well, I think, because mm -hmm. I, I think it's in some cases, it, it does lead to a situation where, you know, people... Just do the CELTA, you know, because they've heard they can travel. They do the CELTA, they go and travel. And then maybe after a couple of years, they change the jobs because it is just so easy if you've got the right passport and the right looks to get a job anywhere, really. That's, you know, I think for people like, like yourself, for example, who are native speakers, but are highly qualified, committed, professional, and, and are in the profession for, for good, you know, seriously, mm -hmm. then, you know, that, that the current model of, ELT that we've got in the private sector is just is just damaging as well because you are not valued for your qualifications Andrew you're valued for your if I can say for your white face your passport your name and because you're a native speaker primarily right to a lot of schools and it's it's sad really if you think about it yeah I couldn't I couldn't agree more uh, and you talked about the CELTA there which is of course one of the biggest training courses in the world uh, to what extent do you know to what extent in training courses this type of topic and discrimination is is talking about or, or spoken about i don't i don't think it's it's addressed practically uh, at all and okay. it's not it's not really on the curriculum so it depends on the tutor if the tutor finds time to do it but celta is already a very intense course so there's yeah. very little time for extra things to to address it and and i don't think these courses a unfortunately they don't really prepare you to to teach probably they're, they're a crash course a survival guide to surviving your first week in the classroom you know That's in a true. way they're very practical but you know now that i have read so much about second language acquisition there's nothing on these courses that addresses the issue the important issue of how people actually learn languages it's all about what to do in the classroom which is valuable right don't get me wrong it's valuable to know 
how to manage the classroom and, and, and so on, how to give instructions. But you can't have a teacher training course that does not address at all the issue of how people acquire languages, because that's the fundamental thing, right? Um, of so course. That, I mean, the that's problem. the simplest thing, it seems like. But it, you're right. A lot of, I've done training courses. You've done training courses. And there is so much material based on, quote unquote, how to teach or this lesson style or that lesson style. But it doesn't focus on the learners. How are languages acquired? How are languages learned? How do students progress? Right. There's very little of that. And it's kind of backwards. Yeah, a and, bit. And I mean, how, how do you know that pair work is more beneficial than individual work or, or stuff like this? How do you know that you should correct students writing in this way? Well, right. you know, unless you read research and unless you show teachers what research says you you can't you can't know and and just saying that well this is what we do because this is what we do or somebody said that we should do this is no <laughs> is no good answer but coming back to the issue of uh you know the <clears throat> the native speaker bias you know i for example i was completely surprised when i finished my celta that you know i couldn't get a job because obviously celta promises you that it will open all sorts of doors of opportunity mm -hmm. and you know unless you're lucky and you get a trainer who you know who supports you and addresses this issue and i know there are trainers who do that then you really come out unprepared for what's what's going to happen you know and i think i think that's that is a very very big issue and you know to to do that you know obviously i've been advocating for equal professional opportunities on CEFL equity advocates on the blog a lot and then through webinars and so on. But I felt that, you know, after a while, there's only so much you can do within a blog, right? Or within a 20 minute podcast. There's only so much that you can, that you can discuss. And hence, that's why I started CEFL equity academy mm -hmm. where, you know, I could, I could offer more in depth look at these issues and, and really try to help. Uh, non-native speakers, for example, improve their job opportunities and, and, and help them uh, teach them strategies they can use to tackle uh, this bias, how to, you know, how to approach these employees, how to market yourself as a non-native speaker. Uh, and, you know, and I've tried to develop courses that help people uh, do that because, as I said, I thought I felt there was you know, there's only so much that you could do in a in a in a short blog post, right? For some things, you need a you need a longer course. And I felt, you know, me personally as a non-native speaker, and having spoken to literally hundreds, if not thousands, of non-native speakers online and face to face, I feel that's that's one of the biggest struggles that they're facing. You know, they're just facing all these job ads for native speakers, and many of them are incredibly highly qualified, proficient, and so on. But nobody has told them what to do and and how to do this, how to get hired, right, as a non-native speaker. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's great that you've got these courses available, and they're all online, correct? Yes, yes, they are. So anyone who wants to sign up can enroll with TEFL Equity Advocates on the website, or on the Academy, I should say. And yeah, yeah, I can say specifically, the courses are fantastic, and they're all focused on native speaker, or non-native speaker teachers, sorry. But also, if you're a native speaker teacher, I'm sure you can find a lot of value in the courses as well. Yeah, we can we can post the link uh, below the below the podcast if people are are interested. Then uh, then check them check them out. The link will be below the podcast. And there is also you know the, so that's I think that's one aspect right that of this sort of native speaker bias in hiring policies, and that's perhaps the the most visible one. But the more I've read about it and the more I thought about it, I think the second under the underlying issue as well is that perhaps not a lot of us realize immediately that there is an issue 
is that English, as other foreign languages, has been taught with the, the idealized native speaker in mind. So mm-hmm. let's say if you're learning Polish, right, it makes quite a lot of sense to use a standard native speaker as a model, right? Because why are you learning Polish? Probably to interact with Polish people uh, and with Polish cultures and so on. But with a language like English that's spoken by the vast majority, in the vast majority by non-native speakers, most students are much more likely to interact with other non-native speakers than native speakers. Absolutely. However, for example, when it comes to teaching pronunciation, we've been teaching pronunciation with either general American English or standard British English as a model, right? So if, if this is how you've uh, learned English, right, um, it's, it shouldn't be surprising to us that then so many students prefer native speaker pronunciation, right? Because this is what they've been led to believe through how we've been teaching. If most of uh, the language models in course books are native speakers, if most of the culture is sort of native speaker culture, right, the, the target culture in the in the course book, then it shouldn't be surprising as well to us that so many students associate good English language teaching and good models of the language with native speakers, right? Well, and that's well, another underlying issue, I think, that, you know, if we are to tackle native speakerism, which is this ideology that native speakers are not only better models, but, but also better teachers of the English language, we need to address these beliefs and these underlying discourses as well. And mm-hmm. I think one of the possible practical ways of doing it is, is teaching English for global communication, teaching English that's not specifically tied to any particular native speaker group, teaching English that recognizes the val- the variety of Englishes out there, recognizes the fact that your average student is not going to interact with mostly native speakers. English is not a foreign language like Polish. English is a lingua franca or an international or global language, however you want to call it, right? And I think that's that's another issue that's, you know, and something that I've my, my thinking has um, sort of evolved towards is, is teaching English for global communication as an, as a lingua franca rather than as a foreign language. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, I, it's obviously not a very linear issue, right? The job ads are one thing, but obviously it goes a lot deeper than that, as you've suggested. And you've kind of transitioned very perfectly into what I would like to do now, which is, you know, I agree with you on 100% of what you're saying, but just for now, I'm going to play devil's advocate. And I'm going to give you a a couple of common, some of you you've already addressed, but a couple of common myths that we always hear about this debate, native speaker versus non-native speaker teacher, and perhaps you can help uh, debunk them for us. Is that okay? All right. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So the first one, of course, is the, the one that we hear the most, I think, and is that it's that students want or prefer native speaker teachers. Uh, so I, I think that's overall true if you ask, if you give students a binary choice, right? So if you ask your student, do you want Andrew the native speaker or Marek the non-native speaker? The vast majority will choose Andrew. But that's most likely because of all the stereotypes, right? And the preconceived notions that they have, the positive ones associated with native speakers and the negative ones associated with non-native speakers. However, if you ask a student a different question, for example, what are the skills and qualities that you think are most important in English language teachers? A lot of research has been done on that, and students never or almost never list being a native speaker. 
if you ask students, for example, there's, there, there have been studies like that as well, to, for example, you give them a list of, let's say, 10 skills and qualities of effective teachers, such as able to motivate learners um, and so on. And then you also add being a native speaker, speaking English as a mother tongue. It's The studies show that the speaking English as a mother tongue or being a native speaker is almost always listed as the least important quality, mm -hmm. right? So what, what I'm trying to say here is that obviously if you give a student a binary choice, a native or a non-native speaker, they're going to choose a native speaker, but they don't know anything about you, Andrew, as a teacher or me, Marek, as a teacher, right? They only know well which language we speak as a mother tongue. And that's Beautiful. just wrong from, I, I also think that's wrong from a marketing perspective because you're, you're not really selling any kind of good product or service to your students. I mean, you should give the students, you should say that, you know, look, Andrew has these qualifications. He's taught in these countries and he's an expert in IELTS preparation, for example. On the other hand, Marek has taught in these countries. He's got these qualifications. He's an expert in teaching English for academic purposes. Let's, let's imagine, right? Beautiful. And then the student can make a valid choice, right? Because they know what's teacher Andrew might be like and what teacher Marek might be like. Yeah, I mean, it makes I, I think that's, you know, that, that should be the, the choice that we're giving to our, to our students. It makes perfect sense, right? I mean, when we think about, we, sometimes as teachers, we don't like to think about this as a business, but of course, ELT is a business, right? Students pay for lessons. So why wouldn't you sell or why wouldn't you be given the information to make a valid choice in your purchase from the student perspective, like you would be anything else? When you go to buy a car and you're looking at a Toyota Camry versus a Honda Civic, you get the specifications of each of the cars, you get the price point, you get you know the, the quality of the seats, the materials, the radio, all of these things to be able to make your choice, right? So when we go back to Absolutely, teaching, yeah. why shouldn't students be given the same opportunity to look at the qualifications, the history, and even the personality perhaps of the teachers before they are assigned to a classroom? Yeah, yeah and, and you know, lastly, I think another thing that we can say is you know, obviously schools advertise for native speakers because they perceive a demand from the students, but that advertising fuels the demand as well. Because imagine you go into an Apple store to buy a mobile phone, and then you find out that the Apple store doesn't have any Apple phones. They only do Samsung. <laughs> I mean, would you be, wouldn't you be disappointed? I, I would be, right? Yeah, because I went to buy an Apple phone and that's what I've been led to believe that Apple phones are the best phones. You know, this, this school has native speakers. That's how they advertise. And you walk in and they and you don't get a native speaker. I mean, surely you're going to be disappointed. Right. right? And so, yep. so I think also the marketing also plays a very important role in in that demand for native speakers. Yeah. So that's we've covered. Actually, that was myth number two that I have here is that selling native speaker teachers is an economic model for institutions. But we know that to be a circular uh, kind of a straw man argument. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, there's plenty of language schools, just to name a couple of the top of my head, for example, Oxford House in, in Barcelona might be Europe, Europe bias because that's where I've taught. But even, you know, Centro Cultural Britannico, where I taught in, or International House San Jose in Costa Rica. I mean, for, for years, there were, they had been the, the best schools. They didn't even have to do any advertising because students would flock to these schools and mm -hmm. they still do. Um, and they, you know, they, they have teachers from all around the world. And if you think about it, if, if you have teachers of uh, different nationalities, the students will one day have classes with a native speaker as well. 
right? So they'll, they'll get to see native and non-native speakers, and they'll get teachers that have been carefully selected based on very high uh, qualifications and so on, primarily based on these qualifications, right? So, so that surely is beneficial as well for you as a language course provider, I think. Absolutely. I mean, it's cultural too as well, right? I mean, it depends on the mindset and the background of where the student is coming from. There's a lot of cultures in the world that are, you know, quote unquote, conventional, traditional cultures and still believe in this native speakerism and believe that myth number three, non-native speaker teachers can't acquire the language to native-like levels. And that's a big myth as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to unpack because first we have to we would have to define what is meant by native-like level. Mm-hmm. If by that you mean the C2 level or Common European Framework, in other words, nine on IELTS or Certificate of Proficiency in English, then there are hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of non-native speakers who have reached that level. If you if by that you mean some sort of idealized native-like proficiency, then probably then probably not um so most second language acquisition research agrees that there is a critical period for example so when it comes to pronunciation the vast majority of adult learners past a certain age will never be able to acquire native like pronunciation in other words they will always retain some sort of an accent and and native speakers will be able to tell that they are not uh native speakers right the problem with with those studies is that in, in my opinion, is that they obviously take a monolingual native speaker, standard native speaker language as the target, right? But by the very definition, a learner is a bilingual, uh, has a bilingual mind, right? And bilinguals have a, have a different brain even, and, and they use the language in a different way. So it shouldn't surprise us really that, you know, I want to use English like you do. Right. Because, or, well, in your case, you're a, you're a multilingual. So that's a slightly different, but like a monolingual Canadian native speaker, because I'm a multilingual, right? And, and, and I might use English in slightly different ways. And so, so I think that there's the issue as well. And, and also, you know, these studies have been done in laboratory settings. So, um, you know, you get a barrage of incredibly complicated and artificial tests right to Mm -hmm. test your proficiency and so on so in a laboratory setting it's definitely true that you know there are critical periods past which very few uh very very few uh non-native speakers will reach native like proficiency but in a non-laboratory setting i mean i i can't really see any difference between me speaking polish or spanish or or english to be honest and Uh, it's missing the point to go into that discussion isn't it because it it begs or it stands on the assumption that native-like proficiency is necessary for learning to happen. And we know that not to be true as well. And our role as teachers or facilitators is to help students through the learning process, right? I mean, we, we say this all the time. You can take two or three hours of class per week, but you're never really going to learn all that much. You need to apply what you've learned in your real life. And that's where really the learning takes place. So as a teacher, our job is to help students autonomize themselves, go out into the world and apply what they've learned, come back to class, learn something else and go and repeat the process again. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's really yeah. where that argument yeah, I mean, falls absolutely. apart. I don't know if you have it on your myth list, but, you know, another myth is that if you learn from a native speaker, you will 
speak like that native speaker or <laughs> you'll get that pronunciation and stuff like this and and it's it's really deeply rooted that myth not just among students but also among teachers but mm-hmm. you know it's it's just so not true i mean even to give a very tribal example but if if it were true that you get the pronunciation of your teacher and hence if you have a teacher who speaks with italian accent you'll end up having an italian accent you know, we could just flick on BBC Three or Canadian national TV and just leave the classroom for three hours, right? And <laughs> then you come back and all your students speak like Canadians. But we know that this doesn't happen. I mean, I'm sure you've had students from all around the world. And how many of them have been able to acquiring pronunciation to such a level that they speak like a Canadian? None. Probably none. Or maybe none. 1%. Yeah. Between one and five percent. But that has nothing to do with me. If I'm the teacher, it has them, you know, if they're living in Toronto for an extended period of time, that might be an influence perhaps. But even, I mean, it depends where they are in their development stage, right? It's really a a non-issue. And you've mentioned something, you know, earlier that's really important as well. And the last myth, of course, is that native speakers are the best model for students, especially with pronunciation. But this, of course, we know not to be true. And with a language like English, like you said, is a lingua franca is so global. There isn't one model of course right you go to even quote-unquote native speakers i mean but you go to different regions of the world you go to india you go to australia new zealand jamaica canada belgium london even within london how many different accents in in london england are there 12 14 whatever so there isn't really a model for students to follow Hmm. yeah i mean there's an artificially created one which is let's say uh, received pronunciation or standard British English, which, you know, the vast majority of British population does not use. And, um, if anything, if you start speaking with received pronunciation, you will just sound pretentious and, <laughs> and might get punched in the face. But, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, that there's obviously linguistically speaking, objectively, there's, there's no better, worse, less or more correct accents. Uh, accents can be more or less prestigious, but that's, you know, based on our prejudices, preconceived notions, and it's based on power distribution within mm-hmm. a particular language. So obviously, standard British English is one of the most prestigious together with general American English, because that's the power, that's the, that's the group of people that holds the power, right? Right. Um, if, no, I mean, if, sorry, go ahead. No, if, if all of a sudden, you know, if it, if Manchester became the center of power in the UK rather than London, it would be the, the, the English spoken in Manchester that would become standard British variety and it would be taught in schools as the variety that all native speakers should learn as well, right? When they, when right. they're in school. But because of historical reasons, a different variety became the most prestigious one, but it has nothing to do with correctness. It has nothing to do with intelligibility either in international context. A very interesting study of over 1,000 people showed that um, there were basically nine different recordings, right? And people uh, had to listen to these recordings and they came from 11 different countries and they had to decide uh, how intelligible their recording was on a scale of one to 10, I think. And interestingly, all the recordings by, were by non-native speakers. There was only one that was recorded by a native speaker who spoke with a standard general American accent, right? So you'd think a prestigious accent that would be easily intelligible to a vast, uh, to a wide variety of uh, users. Funnily enough, it was the second to least intelligible, Andrew. No kidding. Yeah, it was the second to least intelligible. So, you know, you hear these stories all the time, you know, from students that, oh, I can't understand native speakers. And typically would think, oh, that's your fault because your English isn't good enough, right? 
and therefore you need to improve. But, you know, in a globalized world where the vast majority of users are non-native speakers, you know, communication is a two-way street. Mm-hmm. Of course, I have to improve my skills to understand you, but you have to make an effort as well to be understood, right? So it doesn't really follow that I have to make every possible effort to understand how native speakers speak English. Of course, of course. No, I mean, that's it, right? And that's what, you know, going back to the power dynamic, I think that's really, really fascinating. And you're absolutely right. I had a, a little tangent here, but I had a trainee in one of the training courses a few months ago, and she was from Brazil, and she was she's an academic, and she had written this paper on, uh, it, it's not it, about the Portuguese language, but the same principles apply about the power dynamic and how in Mozambique, where Portuguese is spoken, but uh, certain dialects of the Portuguese there is is frowned upon due to power dynamics and the Brazilian Portuguese is looked at being more prestigious. And it's really fascinating, isn't it? How certain aspects of the same language or certain regions who speak that language have certain power versus different things. So that's exactly what basically this is in the English version as well. Um, and what you've done uh, is you've kind of taken that idea of a global language and you've you know, we call the, the English as a lingua franca, and you've published a book, haven't you? Yes, yes. Uh, so it is being printed as we as we speak now, and it should go out in uh, in February this year, hopefully. Oh, right. And yeah, I co-authored it with a colleague, Robert Lowe, who teaches in Japan. And uh, yeah, it's been over a year in the ma- making, if not two years from the initial idea. And it, it, it kind of develops the idea that we... We hinted upon briefly here, and um, which is that you know we really need to move away from teaching English as a foreign language to teaching English as a lingua franca, and this would not only benefit our students, I think, because we would actually be preparing them for how they will be using English, which is as an international language and not really as a foreign language in most cases. Mm-hmm. And then I think it, it can contribute towards tackling this ideology of native speakers and by addressing various beliefs that we have discussed some of which we have discussed in in this podcast so so the title um, the the title of the book is teaching english as a lingua franca a journey from efl to elf by marek kitchkoviak and robert lowe uh just for the listeners if they're not sure can you just quickly describe the difference between uh, english as a foreign language and english as a lingua franca sure yeah so english as a foreign language think of it as teaching any other foreign language where you're teaching it because the the main purpose of learning that language is to communicate with the native speakers of that language, right? And that makes perfect sense when you're learning Dutch, for example, or when you're learning uh, Polish, because most likely you will be using that language to communicate with the native speakers of that language. However, it doesn't really work in the same way with English or even a language such so global as Spanish, right? And when we teach English as a foreign language, we mostly focus on standard native speaker language. Target culture is very important. Teaching students about target culture is very important. Standard native speaker pronunciation is very important and so on. On the other hand, teaching English as a lingua franca involves more teaching English that's globally intelligible, right? And it's not teaching a particular variety of English. Um, at all. It, it more involves teaching students strategies as well to cope with this incredible variety of Englishes. To give you one example, rather than teaching them target culture of a particular group of native speakers, which wouldn't be, be that useful in a, in a lingua franca context. 
you need to teach them intercultural communicative skills or how to navigate their ways in between a lot of different cultures and first languages and how to communicate with these people effectively. Another thing that you might be focusing on rather than standard British pronunciation on general American pronunciation, you'd be focusing on the pronunciation features that research have shown have a big impact on intelligibility and international context and you would prioritize these features. And whether your students speak with an Italian accent, a Chinese accent or a Canadian accent, this doesn't matter. What matters is intelligibility and international concepts. So these are just two of the, you know, of of the differences that I can uh, very quickly outline here. But Beautiful. the book covers first the theoretical uh, ground, and then uh, the second part has about forty activities divided into teaching communicative skills, uh, raising awareness, teaching listening, pronunciation, lexis, uh, and grammar, and teaching intercultural communicative skills as well. Awesome. Yeah, we don't want to give too much away because we want people to go out and pick up the book. Uh, but this is the future of where the industry is going, right? English. And it's really surprising to me that it hasn't come to this point already because, of course, English as a foreign language is kind of a traditional conventional role or, or mindset, right? And, and we know English to be a, a global language. So why not, you know, we, we know it at the language of business, etc. But why don't we have it in our classrooms? Why don't we prepare students for the real world? As you mentioned earlier, the research shows the most interactions that learners of English have are with other learners of English, not with native speakers necessarily. So why don't our course books and our course curriculum reflect that? I think it's a great initiative and a great idea. I hope people will go and pick it up. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And I hope uh, people find it useful and at least thought provoking. I hope that, you know, the book and, and uh, the courses on TEFL Equity Academy, I hope that at least, you know, even if you disagree with the ideas that I hope that at least they you know, they plant a seed perhaps and they make you think and reflect on what you do in the classroom and why you do it and help you mm -hmm. develop professionally as a teacher. And where can people get the book? Is it on Amazon or your website? Uh, it will be on Amazon uh, very, very soon. And uh, we can post uh, the link uh, below the, the podcast as well where people can uh, get the book because I don't know when you're going to post this podcast. So we don't know whether the book has already been published or is still being printed, Andrew. So that's a difficult question. Okay, I will. I my job is to ask the tough questions, right? But <laughs> either way, we'll get the link on the show link, uh, show notes. No problem. Uh, as a final thought, Merrick, uh, what message do you have there or here for the non-native speaker teachers who are listening to us now? I think my message would be to never give up and never let anybody tell you that because you're a non-native speaker, you're a worse teacher. As a, as a non-native speaker, you can be a fantastic teacher and you can get the jobs that you deserve to be getting because of your qualifications and experience. So, you know, go out there, don't give up and, and you will, you know, you will achieve great things. Definitely. Excellent. I couldn't have said it better myself. So thank you very much, Merrick, for joining us today. TEFL Equity Advocates and Academy is the institution. Uh, TEFLEquityAdvocates.com is the website. Where else can people find you online? Uh, so the, the online courses can be found on TEFLEquityAcademy.com. And then I'm also on Twitter at Marek Kichkowiak at TEFLEquity. And then I'm also on, on Facebook and on LinkedIn as well. If you type uh, Tefal Equity and my name, you will find me there. There's a YouTube channel as well. So I wear many different hats. <laughs> well, it's good. I mean, the weather is diverse. You're going to have lots of different hats, right? It's very important. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mark. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, Andrew.
You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.